So before the service began, Pam grabbed me uh, out in the vestibule and said, uh, after reading the two texts that were assigned for today, the next time I'm asked to read scripture, it better be something short and sweet, like Jesus wept. <laughs> Pam, thank you for reading today and for doing so as ably as you did. We're very grateful. Those of you who have been able to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land know that one of the most frustrating aspects of the trip is dealing with all of the crowds. Set aside for the moment the fact that for everybody else there, you are a part of the crowds that they are dealing with. But still... Whenever you at one of the holy sites over there, the Mount of Beatitudes, the Church of the Nativity, the Garden of Gethsemane, and so on, there are always crowds. People elbowing, jostling, taking pictures, taking selfies, getting in the way of your pictures and selfies that you are trying to take. You just want it to be special. You just want to take it all in, have a moment to grasp it. And yet everywhere you turn, there are people getting in the way. One of the best pieces of advice that Rebecca and I received when we went on pilgrimage several years ago was to remember that just as there are always crowds at these holy sites, there were also always crowds around Jesus. Not disciples, crowds. Mobs of people who were attracted to the spectacle of it all, the celebrity of this man, the drama, the miracles. Looky-loos who just wanted to see something amazing. I was reminded of this advice when I read this morning's story from John 3. It's safe to assume, I think, that Nicodemus was tired of the crowds too. He couldn't get close enough to Jesus. He couldn't see what he was doing, hear what he was saying. He probably could not even hear himself think because of all of them. And so he decides to come and see him by night, after hours, in order to have Jesus all to himself. After all, Nicodemus was an important man, a Pharisee, a leader of his people, and important people have to stay informed. He'd heard it's safe to say about what all Jesus had been up to, up to this point. Turning water into wine at a wedding. A neat trick, if I do say so as a Baptist. Driving the money changers out of the temple in Jerusalem. Not great for the bottom line, but uncompromising people are often inspiring. Other things, John tells us at the end of chapter 2, that the crowds there had seen and heard about so that the entirety of the city of Jerusalem was in an uproar about this man from Galilee. 
Rabbi, Nicodemus says to him as he steps out of the darkness. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Otherwise, no one would be able to do what all you have done. It's a smart opening move. Nicodemus has at the same time flattered Jesus and also established himself as something of his peer. Someone who understands. We know we get it. He assures him. He presents himself as somebody that Jesus can talk to, another teacher, another man of God, not just some face in the crowd, but instead the kind of guy that he can have a nice, proper, theological conversation with. Nicodemus, you see, wasn't just powerful, he was also educated. You did not get to be a Pharisee, after all, without years of study and preparation. So it's only natural that he wants to understand what this new, exciting rabbi who's come to town from the countryside is all about. To engage him one-on-one in order to see what he knows, in order to see what he might be able to learn. Nicodemus, in other words, has come to talk turkey, perhaps to debate, but certainly to understand. All of his life he's understood. It's what he's been good at. And yet, almost immediately, he is flummoxed. For the rest of his conversation with Jesus, all Nicodemus can do is ask, how? How could that work? How can this be? Are you saying that I need to be born from above or born again? The same word, by the way, means both things in Greek, which is why this verse gets translated different ways in different Bibles. And this pneuma, he asks, that is somehow involved in this birth, but that also, you say, just blows all around us. Are you talking about spirit like, like God's spirit? Or are you talking about the wind? Again, y'all, the Greek here can mean both. He's flummoxed. And you can almost Hear the smile in Jesus' voice when he points that out. You who are a teacher of Israel don't understand these things? If I've told you about these earthly things and you don't believe, then how can I tell you about things that are higher? Nicodemus, like every other high-achieving type A personality in the history of the world, including several people in this room, just wants to learn, to understand. He just wants to be able to wrap his mind around all of it in order to be able to know what he needs to know, do what he is supposed to do, and be the kind of person that he is supposed to be. 
And yet, that doesn't seem to be the kind of conversation that Jesus wants to have with him. Nicodemus, my friend, when you feel the wind in your hair, do you know where it's come from? Do you know where it's headed? No? Well, then how about this? Back when you were born, do you recall what you had to do in order to make that happen? You yourself, how you accomplished it. How you understood what was happening. How you made sure to have a say-so in the process. No? Good. Then maybe we are finally getting somewhere. It's amazing when you think about it. For all of the play that John 3.16 gets within a certain stripe of American Christianity that is hyper-focused on people understanding and making decisions, you know, plastered on everything from billboards along the highway to signs held aloft at sporting events. It is not a verse about, and it does not come from a passage about what you and I do as believers, but is instead about what God does for us. Nicodemus here, top of the class, front row kid that he is, comes to Jesus in the dark, hoping to chat, hoping to talk, hoping to learn something and understand, and he leaves just as much in the dark as he was when he came. Because between his coming and his going, he comes face to face with a God and a gospel that he cannot quite wrap that big old brain of his around. How, he asks. How can this be? And if someone like Nicodemus can't quite wrap his brain around it, y'all, then what in the world kind of chance do ordinary folks like you and I have? The good news, however, is that in this passage and in this good news, it's very clear that Nicodemus, wise man though he may be, doesn't need to fully understand, and Nicodemus, leader that he is, doesn't need to be in control because it is God who is in control. For God so loved the world that God sent his Son. And all this, he says, so that the world, disciples, crowd, all of it, might be saved through him. You must be born from above, Jesus tells Nicodemus. The wind blows where it chooses and you can hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's come from or where it's going. So it is with all who are born of the Spirit. And all that Nicodemus can do in response is shrug his shoulders and furrow his brow. Try not 
to be astonished, Jesus says to him. And yet, my friends, astonishment seems like it would be a remarkably appropriate response to all of this. There is, of course, one more famously opaque thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus here. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Being lifted up, one might expect, is a good thing. After all, we place the first place team at the highest level of the podium. Whenever we give them the gold, we carry the victors around on our shoulders when they win the championship. We give the bosses of this world offices on the highest floors with the brightest views. And yet here, of course, when Jesus gets lifted up, it's in execution crucifixion, and it's bloody, and it's messy, and it's humiliating. He's left there to die, slowly, agonizingly, stripped, beaten, betrayed by those who were closest to him. In mockery, he's given a crown of thorns by the soldiers. He's jeered at by the crowds who are really just there for the spectacle of it all thinking that they might get to see something amazing. His disciples have fled, all except for a few brave women who stand there at the foot of the cross, weeping, confused, in utter disbelief, flummoxed, you might say, that it had actually come to this. Hopeless doesn't even begin to describe what it looked like. And yet, through it all, carrying their cries and drying their tears and stirring the very dust up from the ground, a breeze began to blow. Amen.